Welcome to the Fellow Traveler Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Lesperance. Listen in as I host humble discussions exploring the diverse expressions of Christian spirituality, tradition, and beyond. Enjoy, and safe traveling. Hello, my fellow travelers. Thanks for listening in. I've really appreciated all your support. If you'd like to support me further, consider becoming a patron on my Patreon. Simply go to patreon.com forward slash morning sun underscore fellow traveler or click the link in the show notes. Thank you so much. I love you and safe traveling. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the fellow traveler. Today we have perhaps the lesser known but no less prolific Addison of, of the hearts. Um, we have Addison Hodge's heart. Um, and he is joining us from Norway. Is that right? That's correct. How are you doing today? I'm doing quite well. And yourself? Pretty well as my as well. Yeah. Um, enjoying the cold weather. We're getting we got a little bit of snow, a little bit of ice last night. So slippery driveway. We'll see how that is later. Yeah, but <laughs> we had our snow, but it's melting off. It looks like today. Oh. Yeah, we've got lots nice. Of, but we got a big snowstorm last night. So. Oh yeah. I know. I have some friends out in Minnesota and they got hit pretty hard too. <laughs> well, Minnesota, great. you have to chip your way out of the ice every year. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. I personally love the snow because I'm a skier. Mm. But um, is there any, are there any mountains out in Norway for skiing? <laughs> it's like, it's like the ski crazy capital of the world. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yes. You know, I yeah, really don't there, know much. There are there are tons of there's there's a glacier right across the fjord from me here. So yeah, no, there's there's tons of skiing here. It's and they as they say of Norwegians, they're they're bored with skis on their feet. So <laughs> just believable. Sounds like my kind of place, actually. I'd love to check out those bigger mountains. We don't have in the northeast uh, North America. We don't have many like big mountains. Yeah, but you've got uh, some nice ones. Yeah, some decent, some decent skiing out here. I just went a couple days ago. It was pretty nice, up in upstate New York. Just this little, little. I love, I love upstate New York, and I love the uh, mountains there. So, so mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. I mean, they get the job done for sure, and some pretty challenging slopes too. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway, thanks for joining me on the fellow traveler. Happy um, to do it. I became um interested in your work actually through Stephen House oh sure mm-hmm. and uh because that's how I came across you but I didn't even know that your brother is David Bentley Hart and I'm like oh that that puts everything together doesn't it uh-huh. <laughs> yeah that's, that's him cool. yeah. yeah that's him <laughs> <laughs> I know but anyway um yeah here on the fellow traveler we like to talk about people's experiences um the idea is um uh thinking about spiritual heritage what is your spiritual heritage what did that look like growing up in it and 
um, what are some experiences that you had, whether mystical or mundane, that kept you within the faith or kept you within the conversation of the faith? And you know, and as we go along, I'll, I'm sure we'll have some other questions. But sure. Well, uh, you know, very, very eclectic in, in many ways. But uh, but I was raised uh, an Episcopalian, and um, which is the American branch of the uh, of the Anglican Communion. And uh, I'm st I'm a member of the Church of England now because we actually have a, a Church of England parish in Bergen, Norway, and I go to that. So even though I spent some years in the Roman Catholic Church, I came back to my Anglicanism in the end because uh, uh, it's home for me and my spirituality very much is uh, shaped by Anglican spirituality. And what that means, what it means for me and what it means for both of my brothers as well, uh, David included, is that uh, we did not grow up in a tradition that uh, emphasized, uh, say, fire and brimstone, uh, uh, you know, spirituality, if you want to call it that, and things of that nature. So even though I went in the 1970s, you're talking about something that renewed my faith, uh, experience-wise, well, it was the charismatic movement, of course, was big in the uh, early 70s. And I, I was in the charismatic movement for you know, maybe three or four years, really. Uh, and that re-energized uh, a, a living faith. But, uh, but I, uh, I came back uh, to a liturgical church, came back to my Anglicanism. Um, when I went to uh, college, uh, I, uh, I had the, uh, the good fortune of being, uh, being taught by uh, an Eastern Orthodox uh, professor by the name of Aristides Papadakis. And uh, I believe David also had him as a professor. And I know my, my other brother, Robert, did as well. And I was, uh, was studying the history of Christianity from, uh, from an Eastern Orthodox perspective. At the same time, I had discovered an Anglican convent and became uh, very close to the uh, sisters there. And one of them actually became a spiritual director for me. And I began to learn about the contemplative prayer life, the contemplative experience, um, which we can talk about if you want it, it uh, after this. And at the same time, when I was in college, I was discovering all kinds of wonderful uh, resources. Uh, I read the entire Corpus of St. John of the Cross, for example, I, I discovered the Philokalia, the uh, Eastern Orthodox collection of spiritual writings that date from about uh, the 300s in well into, I'm, I'm thinking maybe the 14th century, maybe beyond that, I'm not, I'm not certain anymore. And um, so that began to uh, send me in the direction of a contemplative life. I also, also discovered writers like uh, Thomas Merton, for example, and, uh, and others uh, in that uh, broad tradition. And uh, so I would say that, that uh, pointed me in the direction of a more interior uh, spirituality. And at the same time, uh, I began to uh, 
but mainly through Merton and others began to discover uh, the riches of other spiritual traditions or other religious traditions. And so I began reading very much in, say, Buddhist and Hindu texts and things of that nature. And all of that has, um, has nourished me ever since so that, uh, so that I have a, uh, um, a rather broad and, like I said earlier, an eclectic uh, kind of spirituality. And um, I taught briefly in uh, 1982 a, a class, which is what my Substack page is sort of the uh, spiritual descendant of. I taught a, a course at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County on the uh, contemplative traditions of, uh, of the world. And uh, one of my students in that class was actually my younger brother, David. So, uh, so that's, uh, and he has gone on to great things, as you know. But so you taught him everything he knows. Everything. Uh, he's always asking me for input and, and begging for greater knowledge. And I just, wow. I do the best I can to keep him up to par. So you're saying just he's kidding, humble? Just kidding. Yeah, what's that? So you're saying he's humble? No, <laughs> I, even I can't uh, couldn't get away with giving that impression of him. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. Hey, David, if you're listening, I'll listen. I'll listen to you. Uh, you can um, clap back at your brother anytime. Anyway, no, um, no, he's 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 uh, he's uh, going on to be his his own person. But it is it is funny when I go back and I reflect that he was he was. Uh, there as a young man and and i was uh, i was well i was nine years older so i was able to have a jump start so to speak on some of these things but he's excelled uh, he's exceeded my my knowledge by far i think well i've heard he has like a, a library of like over twenty thousand books that he's all read or he's read all of them or something like that i don't know if that's legend or true that's yeah, legendary. It's okay. not twenty thousand. I think it's closer to eighteen thousand five hundred and sixty-eight or something like that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> exactly. No, He's no. embellishing. He. Uh, yeah. 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 Twenty. I know twenty thousand volumes. And if if he's read all of them, uh, I, I'm a monkey's uncle. I'm sorry, but <laughs> <laughs> there's some things I just don't buy, <laughs> even from him. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. That's great. So. So that's cool. So you were teaching and you were the professor to the David Bentley Hart. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yep, absolutely. Um, so what can I add to that? I, I guess, uh, I guess uh, the, the uh, you know, the, like I said, the charismatic movement was the thing that kind of jump-started my faith. Can you talk a little well, bit about that? Like well, what kind of experiences in that movement did you have that jump-started your faith or had gave you kind of this revival? Well, I would I would say uh, pretty much what most people experienced in the uh, charismatic movement in those days was that it was a very lively, vibrant uh, expression of the faith that had uh, um, a number a number of, of branching off movements all happening at the same time. So you had uh, you had say the Assemblies of God and the Pentecostal, your traditional background which i guess you're you, you that was your background in my wrong yeah about? actually my parents were a part of in the 90s they were part of a, cha a church plant here in worcester of okay. assemblies of god lighthouse assemblies of god okay are you familiar at all with elam bible institute in uh, lima new york 
Does that ring a bell? I'm not too That's sure. An it's an assemblies Bible um, school, and I went there for about six months or something until they booted me out. Wow. <laughs> they literally kicked me out of the school <laughs> because I, I couldn't... Uh, I, I had a fiance at the time and I, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't stop secretly meeting with her and that was against the rules of the campus and uh -oh. so I got in trouble and and uh, and I, I was a rebellious sort in my teens and so I was out on my ear which was fine it was great I didn't want to stay there anyway <laughs> she stayed there and that was the end of our relationship uh -oh. <laughs> But, um, but no, what would probably uh, I can say about the charismatic movement is it ignited my, um, uh, maybe the emotional side of Christianity, but it wasn't enough for me. I, 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 um, I needed something a bit more intellectually stimulating than that. And I had grown up in a church where that was prized, uh, the Anglican church and the Episcopal church uh, tends to have that aspect to it, you know, a very, uh, uh, almost a literary uh, theological heritage. And I think that has made a mark on me, and it certainly made a mark on David too, uh, as orthodox as he is, um, there's still a, a, a current of Anglican upbringing that, that's there quite, quite visibly. So... Yeah, I get the sense that he's he holds loosely to orthodox and he's more kind of also eclectic. It's very kind of interesting how he I'd love to talk to him somehow sometime about how he got into more like the Eastern religions and spirituality. Well, that I'm afraid was partly my fault. Uh oh. Uh, so like I said, he was in that class that I took and uh, and that was a heavy emphasis of mine. And uh, now I'm sure he would have been interested in it regardless but that was maybe one of his first real introductions to reading buddhist texts and things of that nature would, would have been getting it from me and i was getting it from uh, my reading of merton and others at the time who yeah. then led me into reading more extensively uh, uh, these texts and these these other traditions yeah it seems like in the last century we, we've had a lot of ecumenical influences amongst like fringe catholic mystics and writers like merton i think of like um you know the cat the catholic worker movement we have a catholic worker here in in, in worcester mm. and we got like dorothy day and dan berrigan and peter morin and philip sure. berrigan you know they all had kind of had this uh they were in conversation with a lot of buddhists and whatnot it was very fascinating yeah, and i have a connection with the Catholic worker by, um, by extension, because a good friend of mine was Jim Forrest, who, uh, who wrote uh, uh, the most recent biography of, uh, of Daniel Berrigan, for example, wrote a book about Merton. He knew Merton. Merton was a spiritual director for a while, and Dorothy Day, was he worked with her. And then I got to know him. And uh, in a way, I feel sort of uh, connected to these others, uh, others through him. He's, he's now passed away about a year ago. So, Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Did, was he the one who wrote um, one about spiritual disciplines? Or am I thinking of a different? Maybe I'm thinking of Richard um, Foster. 
that's Richard Foster. Yeah, he yeah. was actually a Quaker. It's um, mm. a Quaker. I don't is I don't know if he's. I guess he's still alive. I don't. I don't know uh, about Richard Foster beyond yeah. the fact that mm-hmm. I, I read his books uh, years mm-hmm. ago when they first appeared. And and you're right, spiritual disciplines. Uh, that, that was a very important uh, intro for a lot of people to get into something a little more profound than. Uh, I'm afraid what the charismatic movement had to offer. I mean, there's only so much praise the Lord hand waving that you can do before. <laughs> you know, as I've as I've been getting older and reflecting on it, and also hearing about other traditions, like even in the Catholic faith, the Orthodox faith, and even other, like more liturgical or I don't know what you call them, more sacramental forms of Protestantism, like Lutheranism, Anglicanism, whatever. Um, there does seem to be more of an emphasis on. You have the spiritual direction, you have spiritual formation, you have the more sacramental practices. And in my experience within the charismatic or Protestant faith, it was all just like, read your Bible and pray before you go to bed. It was like, okay. And then when we would do worship, you know, <clears throat> really try to get into it. We're, yeah. we're trying to summon the Holy Spirit as if as if God is not already present, you know? Right. Yeah. Um yeah, it, it the pro, well, it's you know the old Anglican view of it was, and there were believe me there was there was a very strong Episcopal uh, charismatic movement in the seventies. I was somewhat involved with that's one of the things that kind of brought me back into the Episcopal Church was a uh, charismatic Episcopal Church that I became associated with at the time. Now, looking back on it now, it was an interesting blend of things, but it didn't quite work uh, in the long run. But but yeah, you're right. I mean, the Episcopal Church, uh, my, my own tradition that really formed me would be the High Church Anglican tradition. That's where I really found. Uh, and if you know anything about the Anglican tradition, you know there's High Church, Low Church, and Broad Church. These are your th- three kinds. Of, the, the distinctions have kind of gotten blurred over the centuries. But when I was young, these uh, distinctions were very obvious. And I tended towards the high church, which had many of uh, the uh, the Catholic practices of um, uh, confession, um, spiritual direction, quite definitely, um, and the uh, and 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 a like I said, almost a literary approach to your faith. I mean, when you consider that the Book of Common Prayer, there are three great texts in English literature, that unless you know them, you're not going to always understand uh, uh, subsequent English literature. And those three texts are the King James Bible, obviously, uh, the works of Shakespeare, and the Book of Common Prayer. And if you have a handle on those, then you have together what constitutes mainly the code to all of English literature. That, that, that comes afterwards. And so um, if you ever listen to erudite Anglican sermons, say on YouTube or something, um, you will hear, especially the British, but when I was growing up, quite common in the United States, references to poets, playwrights, um, uh, not so much to contemporary culture, but to but to literary and um, um, intellectual culture, and that that very much 
was the upbringing we had. And so we were already in a sense uh, uh, primed, if you will, to have that kind of spirituality. And, and I would say it's healthy. Um, I don't think every single Christian needs to come from the same tradition. I think there are certain uh, traditions that appeal to different people. Very definitely, Anglicanism formed me. And if I'm going to be quite honest, I really don't fit anywhere else. It, it's, it's what continues to, to feed me spiritually. So, and that has to do just as much with cultural and psychological aspects of who I am as anything. So, it, you know, if you grew up in the uh, Greek Orthodox Church, you're probably going to really resonate with the Greek Orthodox tradition. If you grew up in a uh, Baptist tradition, you may always still have a core in there somewhere that, that even if you've run away from it, still that's at the center of, of, of your spiritual formation in some way. And I've even met atheists, if you really, uh, if you really listen to them you know what kind of background they had <laughs> yeah you know for sure yeah and then i find this uh, often be true with certain brands of atheists especially the new atheists which your brother loves very much um, <laughs> um <laughs> we all. No, we all. anyway especially with the new atheists you have um oftentimes they think that the tradition they grew up with is all of Christianity. So they're fighting the straw man of, uh, I mean, they're always fighting straw men, but. <laughs> well, it, but if they didn't have straw men, there wouldn't be any new atheism. I'm afraid. That's true. Yeah. Well, the problem with straw men is that they're, the, pro the problem with straw men is that there's some truth in them, isn't there? You know, there, there's some, some truth in the caricatures. Well, yeah, I mean, you wouldn't have a, you know, all caricature, I mean, look at a, look at your typical uh, drawing that is a caricature of somebody, it's, they're recognizable, or it wouldn't, wouldn't work. So, uh, so all the caricatures, definitely, you can find um, exemplars, if you will, of, of what it is that they're caricaturing. Uh, that's, that's not difficult. But when the caricature itself becomes the sole perception of what it is that you have rejected, then that's unfair to two in two in two ways. At first, it's very unfair to the people you're caricaturing. It's also unfair to the people who are listening to you and think that your caricature is accurate. Uh, and uh, and I think the most distressing aspect, not only the new atheists, but in our modern age, we no longer have serious discussions where uh, the other side can be heard. Uh, and it doesn't matter if it's politics, religion, whatever it is, uh, the polarization is such that all we do is caricature and denigrate whatever the other side is. And, that, and that's what has now become our idea of social discourse. So everywhere from social media to newspaper op-ed, pieces to what you hear in the pulpit and what you hear in politi politics so that's my hobby horse for, or my uh, platform there so you can no yeah you're not wrong and it's hard it's hard not to get into that because like especially when when someone who's a um a, a leader or a spokesman for a certain side kind of creates a character of himself so <laughs> you know who i'm talking about uh yeah 
our past yeah. yeah anyway yeah. yeah i won't even get into that yeah. anyway anglicanism so what is the difference between anglicanism and episcopalian only that the episcopal church is the american version of it anglicanism is uh just means it comes from England. That's all the word Anglican means. It's not even the original name of the uh, of the church. Uh, it was the Church of England, but as it spread to other places, uh, because you had other churches there, you had to adopt, you couldn't always be the Church of England, especially if you're in the United States. It, it didn't work. We, we, we didn't have a papacy. We just had a uh, we had a uh, an ethos, if you will, that caricatur uh, characterized what we believed. So, uh, so Episcop the word Episcopal actually came from Scotland, uh, because if you go into Scotland, you had uh, the, ma the major church in Scotland is the Presbyterian Church. Presbyterian just simply means that uh, you have presbyters. So if you were a part of the uh, the Anglican Church in Scotland, then you were you were Episcopalian. You were Episcopal because you had bishops, and it was through the Scottish Episcopal Church that Anglicanism came to the United States, and so the United States just took that same term, Episcopal, uh, and the rest is history, as they say. So, does the Episcopal Church connect itself with the Anglican Church in any way, like by way of like hierarchy or connection or like? Kind of like similar how, you know, with Orthodox and Catholic, you kind of have some sort of um, authority structure that's overseas or somewhere else, you know what I mean? No, like no, obviously this it, church didn't start in America, you know, it started in no. either the East. Well, it started, it, it, the uh, the Episcopal Church per se, when it's, when it, after the break with England, uh, because of the revolution, you then have... Um, a break between the Church of England and the Anglican Church in the United States. And so they begin to adopt, in the US, they began to adopt certain political structures that were also uh, those of the United States. So you had a, you have conventions, you have uh, elections, you have all of these things very much a part of the way the church order is in, uh, in the US. And you actually get your first bishops, and they appear uh, in Philadelphia in the 18th century. And that's when you get your first um, uh, homegrown uh, bishops, if you will. Um, but very soon, I mean, they, they, all, they were all part of the uh, what became the Anglican Communion, so that no matter where you are in the world, if you belong to this particular um, um, uh, communion of churches with all of its distinctive aspects. If you if you were part of that, then you were part of this Anglican communion. And to this day, you still have uh, meetings of the bishops from around the world. They meet every ten years and, and this kind of thing. So, so that's that's that's, fascinating. that's that. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting to see how uh, Episcopal Church has really changed, especially over the past like twenty years. It's yeah. kind of continuously going in more progressive um direction how do anglicans feel about that <laughs> well that's that's opening a can of worms um i would say that what has happened to the episcopal church is is uh, is, is actually kind of sad because once you decide that you're going to go down one political route and become 
this kind of church to the neglect of a, a, a large number of your of your members, uh, you're going to lose those members. And that's what happened to the Episcopal Church. It's gone to being one of the smallest churches. It used to be in the 60s. It was still one of the most influential, the most influential church in the United States. Uh, today, it's 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 struggling and barely getting by. And in a way, they have only themselves to blame when you when you go in a strictly uh, progressive direction. And you basically make it clear that that people of a different outlook, different generation, whatever, are no longer um, wanted. Uh, don't be surprised if people vote with their feet and you don't have them anymore. And that's what happens. So you have a number of actually growing Anglican churches. Uh, my brother, for example, Robert, is, is the priest of one of those uh, what we would call continuing Anglican. That's the term they use, but it, it basically broke from the Episcopal Church uh, in, in that case years ago. They're doing okay. Um, and it's not some, simply because they are quote-unquote conservative. They're just simply still embracing a much broader range of people than the Episcopal Church does. The Episcopal Church has become uh, a spokesperson for a sort of a very left-wing progressive outlook and consequently, it no longer meets the needs of a lot of people spiritually. And uh, it's sad, and I'm sorry for it, but uh, but that's how it happened. I mean, even the All Saints Sisters of the Poor that I mentioned earlier that I became quite good friends with, the sisters, uh, they, uh, they left. They became Roman Catholic. Uh, the entire order did. So, Wow. It is, it's hard to strike a balance, isn't it? Because... On one side, there, or to one degree, to some degree, you have, um, you know, apolitical Christians, right, who are not interested in politics at all, or or at least they think they aren't, but that's all also a political decision, right? Yeah. And at one end, like, I feel like the church should be at the forefront of calling for social justice, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, um, I believe that too. But at the same time, how do you do that in such a way that is almost like, charitable to both sides you know and well because what you do is you emphasize the important things you don't you don't try to force things down people's throats um and one of the great things about anglicanism when i was growing up was because we knew when we went there we had a common liturgy nobody was going to tamper with that liturgy okay uh we weren't going to we weren't going to change God's pronouns or or father son holy spirit or the liturgy held us together Okay, and we didn't have all these forces, these political forces that were now uh, intrusively pulling us apart. So once you start to do that, and once you begin to preach from the pulpit uh, things that have really very little to do with what is central to the faith of the people present, uh, you may you may think you're doing God's work and that you're doing a great a, a great uh, service for all these uh, stodgy, old-fashioned people who just don't have um, the wherewithal to recognize where the world is heading and all of this kind of thing. The truth is you're just simply alienating. And that's what happened. It, it, they alienated uh, generations of people in the church. And as a result, the church that they now have is, is in, has been for some time and, it's, and increasingly in dire straits. 
And if you were to ask many of them um, who are very much proponents of all this, if you were to ask them directly, uh, was this what caused, they would, they would deny it up and down and say, no, you know, it was this, it was that, it was cultural influences. But it's the inability very often of people who are um, ideologically extreme, they cannot see the harm that they do. And that's what happened. So that's my perspective. And I don't think I'm alone in that. I think I think uh, most people who are a little more objective who stand outside of it, because I'm no longer in the Episcopal Church. And like I said, I'm Church of England, which has its own set of problems. But um, but I can sort of stand back from that and say, you know, if you had if you had um, emphasized things like spirituality, spiritual direction, brought people into a, a living experiential interior growth and discipleship and things like this, um, and 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 kept the and yes, absolutely focus on social justice. Uh, you know, you you don't want to you don't want to not have that. Uh, in, uh, aspect to your faith, definitely bring that in because it's central to the, the teachings of Christ, if nothing else. But at the same time, don't take extremely um, provocative, uh, you know, what would you call it, uh, provocative movements forces, whatever you want to call it, and put that right statements. at the center, statements, and put that right at the center of what you do on a Sunday morning. Now that, that, if nothing else, is just stupid. And so that's what happened. And, it, and like I said, I lament it in a way. I mean, I look at it and I think there were so many other ways and things were moving in a much healthier direction. But once that element came in and took control, and it's always that way, <clears throat> it doesn't matter if you're talking about the right or the left, if it's a political movement, if they get 51% of the power, then they're going to steamroll everybody else. And that's what happened. Uh, the left version um, got the power, and that was it for anyone who had a more traditional faith. They, they saw themselves being pushed out, literally, in many cases, pushed out. Um, what they, you know, you couldn't say, I, my conscience won't won't accept this. You, you can't, uh, uh, people who were standing by their own conscience eventually got told that it's either our way or the highway. And don't be surprised they went on the highway, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know. It, well, the same thing, a very similar thing happens in the other direction, right? When you have, because the church that I go to, I'm currently attending is historically was a Baptist church and can, is technically under like a Baptist covering, but it's more like uh, umbrella evangelical. Mm -hmm. And over the past couple of years, pastors have mentioned like this church is for all people, whether you're Democrat or Republican, whether you're liberal or progressive, uh, liberal or conservative, like that should not divide us. We are one church, you know, we're one body. And some conservatives have left because of that, because we, the church won't take a stance to won't take a right wing stance. So it's like yeah. it's a it's the same thing, right? <laughs> See, no, it's they're look, they're they are mirror reflections of each other, <laughs> the left and the right. I, I've come mm -hmm. to that conclusion over the years. It, it doesn't because the right. I agree with you. The right wing is just as destructive in churches, the left wing. They are mirror imaging each other, 
And what we need in, in these churches, I can't speak for your church, but I can for, is, is a return to what used to be derided as latitudinarianism, which means that we take a middle stance and we, we focus on the most essential aspects of the gospel and we don't let political extremes uh, tear us apart, that, 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 that we take a stand not with this side or that side, but we take a stand against both sides in order to hold the center, okay? But, but, if, you're, but if what you have is one side dominating the other or trying to dominate the other, then you end up with exactly what you described. Uh, people will leave, people will uh, be pushed out or will be pushing others out. <clears throat> And America is such a highly politicized, I mean, I actually, I can go to church here and not worry about any of it, you know, because the essentials are there. Uh, we're not, we're not, you know, we're not troubled by these things uh, over here. Uh, it's, if you were to say, is it sort of leaning liberal? Yeah. Is the liturgy kind of conservative? Yeah. It's all the, it's all there. Nobody's nobody's at each other's throat about these. You go to the United States, and I'm afraid that is just simply polarization is just the norm there. And it doesn't matter if you're Catholic, Orthodox, Protestant, Anglican, whatever. Uh, politics dominates the American mentality, and I, uh, I I really do think that if you were to say what is uh, the thing that will dis that will undermine the churches, I won't say destroy, but undermine the churches, it's going to be that uh, because we we refuse to. Uh, push um, against this kind of uh, political intrusion into the life of the of the body of Christ. Okay, that that's you know. So it seems if you look at church history too, it seems to be something that we've always been struggling with, right? As a church, like oh, yeah, to what to what degree? Yeah, ever since Constantine, yeah. I mean, I wrote a book about this. I mean, oh. my, uh, my book, uh, Strangers and Pilgrims, Once More, is, is all about that. Mm. And the subtitle is How to Be a Follower of Jesus <clears throat> in a Post-Christendom mm. World. What you have and what, you, what you're talking, what, what we're talking about here is uh, people have different views of Christendom, which means <clears throat> church and politics together. It doesn't mean that in Norwegian. Uh, Christendom is e equal to Christianity. There, or me it means this. It's just an, it's the word for Christianity here. But in but in the English language, Christendom means a, a political slash religious order, and that's really what we've got going here. The left can claim they don't want that, but the left is very politically oriented and very definitely is thinking in terms of politics and the, and of course when you talk about the christian right they don't even know that there's a distinction between uh between uh religion and politics they they want to make their politics religious and they want to make their religion political so i'd say it's a mess uh and the fact that you see this even in uh, among american catholics who should be above all this is, is especially especially uh distressing i think um so anyway, not to, I didn't yeah, mean to no, on all of that. No, That's, no, no. Those, there are things I'm just thinking about, but like yeah. I said, I wrote a book about this some years ago. and it, I'd like to check that out. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Um, what I was going to say is that like, you know, there's a, I've, I've gone through like the back and forth. It's like, 
well, maybe the church should be more liberal. Maybe the church should be more conservative. And then, then I was thinking for a time, well, maybe I should just be apolitical as a Christian. Well, that's not, that doesn't make sense. And that's not realistic. Um, but I think what it should look like, and I think it's like exactly what you were saying, put Jesus at the center of your faith yeah. and your practice. And then it's going to look like listening to Jesus to take care of the poor, the homeless, the widows, the orphans, the being imprisoned. Yeah. And it's going to look like the first shall be last, the last shall be first. Like, what does a society look like in, mm -hmm. in light of the kingdom of God? It's very different than both the left and the right in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, that's, I mean, that's the thing is, and it, if you say this, um, people from both sides will not like to hear it. And they'll tell you, well, you have to be against mm -hmm. the right, or you have to be against the left. Mm -hmm. The truth is, the Christian faith is, uh, the very fact that we have a tradition means that we have at the center something that we conserve. So conservatism is not our politics, but it is our way of, I mean, we hold on to the sacrament and we say the sacrament is, we use bread and wine, okay? We hold on to um, certain forms of church order. We, we keep a tradition there. That means that we have a lively character. It might look different from one denomination or communion to another, but there's something there that is essential, and we conserve that, and that's conserved. We don't, we don't, uh, that's what holds us together. If we didn't have this um, creedal, sacramental, whatever you want to call it, uh, core, then there would be nothing there really to, to hold us together. It's like the Buddhists, you know, uh, they take refuge in the Buddha, the Sangha, and the, and the Dharma. Okay, well, the Christian is supposed to take refuge in Christ, the church, and, and, and the gospel. Those are the center things for us. Mm -hmm. Those are our Buddha, Sangha, and, and Dharma. Okay, it's an exact parallel. So that's going to be conservative. Is it going to be liberal? Well, if you read what Jesus says we're going to be judged for, mm -hmm. okay, take Matthew 25, the great, uh, the very last parable of Jesus in Matthew is the parable of the judgment where it's <clears throat> the sheep and the goats and all that stuff. And what we fail to realize is that when he says he calls before him the nations, that those nations are the nations that are referred to in chapter 28, verse 19 of Matthew, make disciples of all nations. So who is it that's standing before the judgment seat? It is all of those who have been called uh, by, you know, into the church, if you will, all of those who've been called through the gospel, those nations, those peoples who now stand and, you know, uh, imaginatively speaking, we're among them. What are we judged on? Well, uh, what did you do for the outcast, the naked, the hungry, the, you know, because I was there, you know, you didn't, did you, or did you not see me there? Okay. Well, once you realize that, that that is what the, I mean, forget about all this other stuff, this other theological and Christological and soteriological stuff that we've put on top of the, all of that, all the very neat theological 
ways that we try to get around that. The, the actual message of that parable is all Christians, when they stand uh, you know, before God, before Christ, they're going to be answerable for what looks like a very liberal agenda. How did you treat those who needed your help? Because in doing or not doing it, you were doing it or not doing it to me. So Christ is identifying himself, uh, incarnationally, this makes a lot of sense. He's identifying himself with all of humanity. You know, what you do to all of humanity, you're doing to me because I'm identified with that. I've, I've come among you and I've incorporated you into myself as a, as a race. Now, how did you do that as my followers who knew better? How and what did you do to alleviate those problems? And that, and that, that, that is the, what's being described there is the judgment of, if you will, Christians, his followers among the nations. But we, we've had all kinds, of, all kinds of ways of avoiding facing that that's really what that parable is saying. <laughs> you know, we, we've done a very good job of, of finding out, you know, well, you know, Jesus, uh, he's, he's not speaking to us. He's speaking to the world. You know, all the, and you, you know all the justifications. And yet a plain reading of those, of those texts make it quite clear what, what he's saying, what he's, what he's expecting of us. And so that's a liberal agenda. So on one hand, we're both conservative, or, you know, we're conservative here. On the other hand, we're very, very liberal. And if we can hold that together and do it for, for the sake of what is essential <clears throat> to the gospel, to our faith in Jesus Christ, then we should not be wasting our time having political arguments that are part of the secular agenda, either of the left or of the right. They do not belong among us, say. And that's, it gets right back to that old distinction between the church and the world. We are not of this world. And until we get that through our heads, we're going to have problems in our churches. And let's hope some of those churches survive because that's, that's what's at issue here. Wow, that's really great. I, I never made that connection between I'm going to judge the nations. Well, those are the very ones who we're called to in the great commission to disciple. And, right. and what, and, and what does Jesus say to teach them everything that I have taught you? Well, what did he teach them? The whole Sermon on the Mount, right? So it's like. Exactly. Nobody the takes Sermon them. on the Mount is, see, we're, right now we're looking at Matthew. Or, mm -hmm. you know, we're not looking at Paul. We're not looking at, we're saying, what, what does Matthew have to say? <clears throat> and if you take that as one package, it's a very clear message. Here's how you're to live, chapters five to seven. Here's how you're to live your lives. You notice he never says, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, that any of those things are impossible to do. Because if you actually read it, and I wrote a book on the Sermon on the Mount too, I just throw that out for you. <laughs> if you read that, it's very clear he expects you to be able to do it. You know, can we love yeah. our enemies? Of course you can, because love doesn't mean gushy, emotional uh, feelings, even forgiveness. It means letting go of the you don't wish harm against the people that are, quote unquote, your enemies. It, it has nothing to do with your feelings. It has to do with your actions. All right. Um, and you're right. And the whole movement of the Matthew gospel is it moves you from his teachings to the fact we're going to be judged on the basis of his teachings. Now, that now you can say, that's works righteousness. I don't care what, what, it, what you call it, but that's well, what it. Does 
what do you do with that if you're a, a you know more yeah. a different kind of protestant who's more sola scriptura or oh i've actually heard um i was listening to a conservative christian um wrote radio show um and it was actually remnant radio i don't care about calling them up uh remnant radio which is really popular uh theological they're they're more charismatic which is cool and i like a lot of their interviews but one of them they were interviewing this guy who used to be in new age and like progressive christian and then he kind of came back to conservative christianity whatever that looks like but one of the hosts said we're going to be judged on what we believed about jesus it's like that's not what jesus said (laughs) Jesus didn't say we're not going to be we're going to be judged based off of what thoughts we had about who Jesus is. Right. No, that's that's that is uh, right there. You have one of the main, actually, a very bad interpretation of what what of what the gospel is all about. Um, and I mean, you're not even going to find that in Paul, um, <laughs> who is supposedly the justification by faith alone guy. Well, he never mm-hmm. says we're justified by faith alone, not once. He says we're justified by faith, but faith for him means you're you basically faith means you're doing what Christ you, you rely on him to do the things he said to do. And all you have to do is read his epistles. Half the epistle he's talking about this, that, or the problems in a church or what you're supposed to believe. And then the other half usually is him saying, and now here's how you should be living your lives. Very clear that that what you do is 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 vitally important. The only place you read about justification by faith alone, the only sentence in the entire um, New Testament where you have the words justification by faith alone is James chapter 2, verse 17, which says, we know that we are not justified by faith alone. (laughs) And James, if you read it, is basically unpacking the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's, I wrote a commentary on that too. So I, I keep going back to what I've written. Oh, it's great. Well, didn't you wrote a, a book called, uh, what if we took something about taking Jesus seriously? Taking Jesus at his word. And that's the one on the Sermon on the Mount. Mm, yeah. That's a tough thing to do, isn't it? But it's necessary. Yeah. Well, uh, it doesn't mean you're supposed to be perfect. It simply means that you, that you try, you call on the help of God, I guess, you know, when, when you need to, and, and, uh, and it, we can certainly say it's by grace alone. I wouldn't even be attempting this if it wasn't for, for the grace that's been shown me, but, uh, but ultimately it's, uh, it's important to, to recognize that when, you know, Christ doesn't condemn us because we tried and failed or that we sin from time to time, but, and we don't like it and we come back. I mean, this is where the Catholic understanding of uh, confession is actually quite a good and healthy thing, and, and maybe more Protestants should take it seriously. Um, Anglicanism, uh, it's even in the Book of Common Prayer that, that uh, when you need to, you, you, you do. Uh, it's good for our souls to, to admit that we do these things and ask for help, and then we get back up and, and, and move on. So the idea is not that you have to be perfect to attain heaven somehow. That, that's ridiculous. You know, it isn't in that sense. It's not by what we do. But the idea that we're that we don't have to take it seriously enough that the teachings of Christ are every bit as important as who Christ is. The only reason that we 
take seriously who Christ is is because we know what he told us to do and vice versa. The reason we do what he asks us or tells us to do is because of, of, uh, of the fact that, uh, that he has done what he's done for us. So th- those are the, those are the things we have to hold together. You know, all that. My mind is yeah. starting to wander. I hear you. Well, yeah. I was thinking of you, um, how would you understand the gospel as an Anglican or maybe just personally, how do you understand the gospel? I feel like everybody I ask this question to has a slightly different um, perspective or, or yeah. um, you know, way of seeing it. And I'm curious how you see it. Well, I, you know, it, it, this is the thing that I, if I'm going to say, what is the good news that Jesus taught? because that's really where we hear about, you know, uh, repent and believe the gospel. The word repent, metanoia, means to change how you think. Um, change your, change your, uh, your mind, if you will. And that's why I tend towards a contemplative spirituality. I think it's the meditation through uh, a silent and still engagement with uh, with with the Father in secret, you know Matthew six verse six. Um, you know that you that, that when you pray, go and shut the door. And the door there doesn't necessarily mean a literal door. It means the the door of your heart, the door of your mouth. You know, and uh, and there, uh, your Father who sees in secret. <clears throat> well, basically, you will have a you will have an uh, an encounter with with God there. So, if I was to say what is what is the first part of the gospel, it's it's repentance. It's changing your mind. Uh, Paul says this: Don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed in the renewal of your mind. You know, and you can go down a, a list of um, texts that are constantly bringing us back to this idea of changing this part of us which is and this part of us the heart prayer of the heart if you will so that we have an encounter with 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 god and and uh, that's real and transformative the gospel then is to believe the gospel that's what you know repent and believe the gospel what is the gospel well it's the good news what is the good news well for jesus it means the kingdom of god is here among us and we see this in luke 17 where he says um, and i believe he means this this way because we have other uh, other texts which seem to back this up the kingdom of god is within you in other words you go within to find the the pearl of great price to find the treasure that's that's buried and you and you uh, engage with that and that begins to transform you as paul puts it in second corinthians 3 verse 18 that we go from one degree of glory to another from glory to glory uh, being transformed which comes from the spirit he says and the spirit is the lord okay so christ the lord is somehow his spirit his breath to put it in very metaphorical uh, imagery, <clears throat> somehow indwells us. And because we have an encounter with that, we are transformed. So then that brings out the question, what is, what does the, what is this uh, sacrifice of the cross, the resurrection? 
the thing that I think we fail sometimes to recognize is that the sacrifice of the cross, <clears throat> the death of Christ, incorporates all of humanity. It doesn't matter if you're a Buddhist, a Hindu, a Christian, a, a Sikh, a Muslim, whatever. We're all included in that. His resurrection, uh, as in Adam, all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. That word all actually means all. Okay. So he's done all of that. So the, what is the good news? The good news is uh, death and resurrection has, has um, <clears throat> incorporated, has embraced, has comprehended the entirety of, of the human uh, race, if you will, which means I'm involved in that. And I've responded to this good news. Therefore, I'm baptized into it. I've, I, I am now actively engaged in it. Other people, this may be, uh, this may be uh, uh, the old term, the anonymous Christian. You, know, you might be a Zen Buddhist. But that same reality is true for them as it is for us. We're just those who believe this and have actively, uh, you know, acknowledged it and have entered into it. So what is the good news? The good news should never be believe this or else. It's here's good news. You don't have to do anything except to go inward and discover this presence of the living Christ collectively, individually, and then live into that by doing the things that he has taught us to do. And that to me is the gospel uh, in a nutshell. The, the, uh, um, and yes, there are all kinds of different ways of looking at the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and all of that. And we could get into all kinds of atonement theories and all of that. But the essential thing is atonement at one meant. And once we realize that that's true for us, that that's been accomplished, that that at one moment takes place and that we can encounter it, engage it within, then we have a basis both for spirituality and for action in the world. So that's the, that's where I am at any rate. Wow. I really like the way you explained that. And I liked how you made that connection with the inner life. Mm. How when Jesus says the kingdom of God is within you, a lot of people see that as like the kingdom of God is like in your presence or mm -hmm. they try to interpret it like meaning like, oh, it's out there somewhere and you got to tap into it somehow. Yeah. But how, how do you understand it as the, the kingdom of God is within you? Uh, because we have other ancient texts which basically build on that understanding of, uh, of what Jesus is saying. So it may not be a direct quote from Luke 17, like I said, but it is a uh, it is an understanding. I mean, for example, if you read the Philokalia, okay, if you read your early monastic writers, if you read your church fathers, people like Gregory of Nyssa or Maximus the Confessor or Augustine or or any of them, uh, you you will already see that they actually understand that text, or if not that text, that idea as meaning, quite literally, that the Spirit of God inhabits us, we can encounter God and we have to do it. It's a living experiential thing that we uh, focus our minds on again. We allow the transformation of our thoughts, 
and we take upon ourselves the discipline of of sitting and listening for the presence of God. You may not hear anything verbally, but the more that you practice, again, it's like Buddhist practice. The more you practice, the more you will be transformed. And it may take you, you may just spend years of sitting in silence, um, saying the Jesus prayer, whatever way you have in the, you know, uh, uh, centering prayer, whatever the form you, you adopt. I guarantee you, you do that long enough and you do it daily and you begin to practice it, you will begin to see changes take place. Um, there'll be subtle changes. Uh, you're not going to suddenly have a burst, you might, but I doubt it, a burst of enlightenment. What you will have is that you'll find that you are beginning to think more soberly and clearly. Um, things that would have been acceptable to you um, maybe three or four years ago are no longer acceptable to you. Uh, you're, you are more guarded with how you speak, how you treat people. You become more empathetic. You know, you, you, you can sympathize and, and love others that, and even animals and all of creation. Something begins to, to change. And you can't put your finger on when it happened. You just know that it's happening because you have, uh, like Mary, in the Mary and Martha story, you have sat at the feet of Jesus and listened and aren't distracted with a million and one other things. Uh, nothing wrong with washing dishes, but Jesus doesn't praise Martha. You'll hear many, every time Martha and Mary's uh, story comes up, you'll always hear this, the, the, the priest or the pastor praising Martha. We wouldn't be able to do what Mary does unless we had our Martha. You know, you'll hear that over. But that's not what, that's not what that gospel text is all about. It's about what Mary is doing, and Martha's the one who's distracted. And uh, and to uh, I, you can almost you can almost tell that this person is not someone who's who's actually uh, serious about stillness, listening, encountering Christ, or whatever within, because they're busy praising Martha when they should be paying attention to what Jesus says to Mary. You know so. Wow, that speaks very deeply to our culture, for sure. We're always distracted, aren't we? I can say that for myself. Well, all of all of our culture is designed to do nothing but distract us now. Uh, mm. This is not true, even in our grandparents and, and great-grandparents' day, as much as it is today. Now everything is designed to distract you. Uh, mm. you, know, uh, you, you. You really do have to turn off your telephone. You really do have to shut the PC and things like that, you know, too. Yeah. For sure, but it's worth it. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit as we come draw near to a close, if you could speak a little bit to the your experience with this contemplative inward um, work that you're speaking of. I've I, Well, I've been practicing it for about 50 years. Okay, to be quite honest, from, from the early 70s to, to the present day. Um, it's become more and more simple as the years have progressed. Uh, the truth is what works for you and when you're in your 20s very often no longer works for you when you're in your 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s and on. Uh, it continues to change, but the essential is this. You learn uh, to practice stillness. You learn uh, how to block the interruption of your thoughts 
okay? Because thoughts are the great distraction. And I could give you some, some really good biblical text, or not biblical texts, really good uh, patristic texts that deal with the idea of the thought life, which are, which are very good. Um, but, you know, your, your head is constantly like a train station. It's all these thoughts. You have to learn to rise above the thoughts, observe the thoughts, but let them come, let them go, and not chase after them. So you, you, it becomes more and more simple over the years. And that's what happened with me. I, it just becomes more simple. And the periods of silence and stillness and meditation have gotten longer and longer. So that I spend much more time doing that now than I did even just a few years back. Um, but I, I'm also retired, so I have more time that I can do it in. You know, for, for people who are trying to raise a family like I did 30 years ago. Um, it, it's a different story. You 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 grab what time you can, uh, but when you get when you get to a certain age, uh, you find you have more time, and and it, you very naturally, if you're that kind of person, you will you'll take advantage of that, uh, especially as you know that you have less and less time ahead of you, you know, you know, and uh, and uh, and that's another good thing is always keep death in front of you. Um, the fact of death is always potentially there every single day of your life. Mm. And uh, memento mori is, is not, is not the, is not a dumb practice always to, to bear in mind that yes, there, there it could happen at any time, not to be morbid, but just to bear it in no. mind. Yeah. I feel like Christians of all people are, are thinking like that but there's a different kind of hope that we have in resurrection mm. that kind of takes away the sting of death yeah because we're kind of, well we are we are uh, what is how does uh, colossians put it and you know if you then be risen with christ it's a it's already accomplished in us uh, so yeah the pray uh, uh as I just heard a Zen Buddhist actually talk, <laughs> who did a meditation on Ash Wednesday, believe it or not. But that if we are practicing as we ought, and he was talking about Zen, but he was talking about Ash Wednesday too. Uh, I posted it on my Substack page. So if you can find that, you can actually, that's one of the free ones. So you can listen to him. I'll check it out but if you're but if you uh but if you actually practice these things then every day is ash wednesday and lent and every day is easter and resurrection too so that that's an internal reality and as we hope you know in christ it's uh it's an ultimate reality as well so that's really cool and and um Obviously, if you've been practicing these contemplative practices for 50 years now, I mean, you haven't, it hasn't gotten old to you, right? It just, like you said, oh, keeps evolving. No, no, now, uh, here's a caution. Um, there are periods of boredom. Mm. If you're going to be serious about this practice, there are going to be times when the distractions are real and you just have to sit through them. You, you just, you wait it out. Um you will have periods of boredom, you know, and this is, and for a culture like ours, they can't stand a few moments without having, uh, pardon the language here, but without having a, a mental masturbation, basically. Uh, that just drives you nuts. 
right? Uh, you, you know, this idea that that you that you're going to sit here and be bored. Well, yes, you have to do that. That is part of the. Uh, that is part of it. If you're going to encounter God, then Matthew six six, you shut the door, you get alone with God, with 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 the presence of the Father or whatever, <clears throat> and you just begin to uh, allow that to be. And if if you if you can't do that then you have to learn how to do it. it there's no way around it. Uh, that is what you have to do. And so, yes, there will be periods where it's not exciting, but, but the Christian walk is not exciting. Uh, prayer is not exciting. Spiritual discipline is not exciting. It's life-changing, and that's, that's, where it's, that's where the important uh, focus has to be. It's going to change me. Uh, but if I'm looking for a thrill or for, you know, uh, spiritual goosebumps, well, you know, forget it. <laughs> yeah. For a revival. Yeah, if it, that's that's nice if it happens, but it uh, but once it's not there, it doesn't mean that the spirit is no longer there. You know, or we have mm -hmm. to invoke him and work our emotional frenzy up so that we can then feel like we had the Holy Spirit descend upon us. You know, and that and that, by the way, is the downside of the charismatic. Renewal. Yeah, we have to make it happen sometimes. Well, it becomes pagan, right? Because then it's like an incant. We have to do an incantation to draw yeah. God to us. Rather, right. the gospel is God came to us. He made yeah. it happen. The kingdom of God is is at hand. Well, it's what, what, is, uh, what does it say in Acts seventeen verse twenty eight? What is it when Paul says, uh, "We live mm. and have our being in God." Mm. Okay, well, what does that tell you? We live, move, and have our being in God. How far away is he from us? He's never distant. We don't mm -hmm. have to call him down. We're living, moving, and being in him all the time. So that that is, uh, it's, uh, you know, so the very idea you have to invoke the spirit to come down and be with you, you know, it's like, no, you, you want you, your, your very breath that you're drawing. Mm. is the presence of God. So, you know, the very nature around you is, is speaking to you, the, the presence of God. As uh, one of the great mystics of the 14th century, Meister Eckhart said, every, or he's supposedly said, we, I can't find the text, but uh, he's, it's attributed to him that every single thing that exists is a word of God. Okay, so it, in other words, it speaks to us it communicates the presence of that uh, of that presence that uh, cannot be seen, but is always there. The very world we're in is a, is a constant reminder of uh, of the fact that God is, you know. Yeah, and when you were talking a little bit earlier about the gospel and the way way you interpret it and understand it, it, you know, I think of Jesus saying, "There's coming a time when true worshipers will worship me in spirit and in truth." not just on the holy mountain, yeah. this mountain or that mountain or that temple or that temple. And I think Jesus is talking about the eventual new creation, the kingdom of God filling like the yeast, filling the entire loaf of dough, right? Mm -hmm. and, and like everywhere we go, we can worship God. And also I was thinking about, you know, does that have any connection? Like the whole kingdom of God is within you. Does that have anything, any connection with Matthew? I think he talks about the veil being torn it's in um, it's in Mark, I believe, and Matthew, and maybe in Luke. I can't remember. It's in it's in the synoptics. Mm. Yeah, and um, 
like the veil of the temple veil of the temple is is torn it and that that is uh, a symbolic uh, occurrence, if you will, mm-hmm. in the gospel. Because when that occurs, it occurs at the same moment that Jesus um, gives up the spirit. All right. He gives up the spirit. And then it says the veil of the temple was rent. He gives out the spirit, the spirit of god or the presence of god blows out of the temple if you will and into the world you know so you have this Mm. joining and then uh, to make it very explicit john then picks up on this and and basically says that jesus identifies his body this is in chapter two of john he identifies his body with the temple this Mm. he said um not of the temple but of his of his body um so, so there it's very clearly understood. And interestingly, if you put parallel the synoptic gospels, uh, John does not mention the rending of the temple veil. Instead, he speaks of the spear thrusting the side of Christ, out of which then comes blood and water. And that's saying the same thing. Uh, John is, uh, if, and it, like I say, it's, it's very much a parallel if you put it side by side where the gospels emphasize this rending of the veil the spirit going out into the world john in that place has the rending of jesus the temple he's already been identified as such and out of him comes uh, the blood and the water uh, which are in a sense the holy spirit you know or, or connected to the holy spirit so it's a yeah reading gospels can be very interesting on those fascinating yeah so does the spirit proceed from the father or from the father and the son? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Who cares? <laughs> it's hardly worth uh, uh, breaking uh, communion with uh, two halves of the church. Over. No. I mean, it's such a silly damn thing to even <laughs> sit, sit and be frustrated. Uh, but I mean, if you want to get all technical, what's it, uh, John 15, you know, when the spirit who proceeds from the father comes or I will send him to you. I mean, what if but, I go, I'll leave you the comforter. Yeah. The father, I'll pray to the father and he will send you the comforter. So, I mean, it's, it's like both, right? It's, I don't know. It's like, it's, the whole, hairs. Uh, it's one of those kinds of arguments that is embarrassing. Uh, <laughs> historically, if you're a Christian, you, re- you read this and you go, what were you people thinking? But you actually are going to, to argue. and then the accusation, if you believe this, you know, especially from the Orthodox, but if you believe that you, you're, you're, a, you're, you're a Western heretic because you don't understand, you know, it's like nobody understands God. Let's, let's face it. Every, everything, whenever we use this language, we're talking about what cannot be articulated. <laughs> so mm-hmm. we're, we're, using a, uh, we're using metaphors and imagery to understand what we can't understand. So, so this picayune internecine savagery directed at one another because we didn't get our get our pronouns right <laughs> or whatever <laughs> oh man that's the kind of nonsense we 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 really uh, we need to live down not uh, not continue to uh, to beat each other over the head about so yeah wow that's fascinating so eclectic anglicanism yeah well that's sort of where i am yeah 
That's cool. I, could, I could talk if you want about Chinese philosophy for a while. Oh, right? sure. Oh, yeah. If you want, if you want to talk <laughs> no, about, I'm not, uh, forget that. Okay. It's just another big interest. <laughs> Maybe another and, time. Yeah, Chan and uh, Taoism and things. Those are those fascinate me, but uh, but not well, today. We'll have to give a reason to get to somehow get David on here, so I can talk to him and he can tell you, he can tell me who really was his his greatest influence. And hopefully yeah. he'll say it was Addison Hodges. He'll probably Hodges. say it was his mother or his father. I mean, you know, he's not going to give credit where credit is due. <laughs> no, exactly. He's, he's, he's already elevated his dog to a divine status. So, you know. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I'd love to chat with him sometime. And I, hopefully I will someday. Yeah, well, maybe you will. He's a, he's a, he's a good Hard age. to pin down. Hmm? He's hard to get in contact with sometimes. But yeah, Well, maybe I'll... Maybe I'll try and get him to. I tell you what, when you drop this episode, I'll send it to him. Excellent. Get in touch with Peter because he's a he's a he's a good guy, and he'd like to talk to you, and wouldn't hurt you to to humble yourself. <laughs> Come down from your throne. Come down from your from your elevated heights and from your and, tower and deign to talk to real people for a change. <laughs> no, he he actually is a lot more. I feel like he's he's a lot more open to conversation with with quite a few people oh he is he's uh, yeah he's he's okay and uh mm -hmm. in that regard i'm to, i i i'm ribbing him but then he's my brother no, of course i've, I've been you picking on him ever since he was a kid so he was also your pupil at one point so briefly yeah although i i have yet to ever hear him acknowledge this uh, <laughs> exactly yeah i never knew this so yeah well now yeah. we have it on yeah. record yeah Addison Hot David Bentley Hart learned everything from Addison Hodge's heart. And why so do you guys you do by... is if, is if you get him on there, what you have to then do is uh, is uh, let him speak, and then you drop that episode and then come back to me and ask me how much of this is true and how much of it's bunk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'll give you the straight dope. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, you know what it is? It's because he had he had the gall to come out with an overtly universalist book and that just uh that got everybody up and i'll use panties in a wad yeah well you know if 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 your whole idea is that is that uh of god is that uh is that he's well if your whole idea of the gospel is that you're being saved from endless torture by the god who loves you i you know already you there's something wrong with this picture so mm -hmm. <laughs> i'm not sure why where I differ from from David is this, whereas uh, he he actually had the passion, and I'm glad he did uh, to write a book about this. Mm -hmm. Is me? I never believed that to begin with, and I kind of blew it off as well. You know, so I mean, if people want to believe that, you know, fine. You know, really? it sounds illogical to me, but uh, but 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 he actually addressed it, and so, mm -hmm. uh, so power to him. Because I, I couldn't be bothered. That was my... <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny. I've heard him say in interviews that he doesn't have a pastoral bone in his body. So, like, he doesn't care how people feel, really. But, I mean, he cared enough to write this book to address yeah. these it, problems. Not, uh, well, that's true. He's not a pastor. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I am. Okay, I spent years as a priest. Um, mm -hmm. So, everything I do has a pastoral touch to it. Mm -hmm as much by training as anything, because uh, I would say uh, by nature, I'm probably like he is. I, I don't, I don't tend to be the kind who um, 
would be naturally pastoral, but, but by habit, you become that over the years. I did, but no, he's not a pastoral person, but that doesn't mean he doesn't care deeply. And he does. I mean, he does uh, care. But the, the reason that he becomes so irate and so uh, scathing in his critique of people who hold this view is precisely because he actually does care. And he mm. wants to see God understood as a loving uh, God, not as a, uh, not as a, uh, not as a cruel tyrant. And too mm. often that's how God has been depicted. And so, like I say, God bless him for, for writing the book. Mm. I wouldn't want to take the heat he's taken for, for it. I'll probably get heat now just because I spoke to you and said what I said, but no, not true. But in my case, I couldn't care less. In his yeah. case, <laughs> he's so go back and forth. <laughs> so. He'll go back and forth and back and forth, uh, arguing with different, um, like people like uh, Michael McClymond, who wrote The Devil's Redemption, and and he's gone back and forth with N.T. Wright a little bit, which I feel like N.T. Wright fight someone else, you know, like. Or join, oh, join the club. NT writes okay. I don't. I don't have any problems. With no, him. I like him. I like yeah, him. Me too. Just, I mean, I, I I got some good stuff from him. I, but um, I just feel like he he should be fighting other wars, not this war. Well, maybe it's over. I mean, this with McClymond and uh, Rooney again. Like, if it was me, I I just I wouldn't even bother to to argue yeah. with these people because I think I think it's uh, I couldn't care less what they think. Mm -hmm. and, and uh, to me, it's just an, uh, a huge waste of time to be arguing about something as illogical as that, as that understanding of God. And I wouldn't, you know, and, I, and I'll be even more forthright, if all the fathers affirmed it, I couldn't. Because the truth of the matter is, it, to me, it's just, it boils down simply to straight logic. You can't believe uh, in a God who is supposedly all loving and when willing to torment souls for eternity. I mean, to me that if, if you can hold those two things together, then either you don't understand what torment is, or you don't understand what love is, but you can't put those two things together and make any logical sense whatsoever. So, mm. and then they will come back and they would say, well, you know, greater minds than yours have, have held those beliefs. And I'd say, well, to the extent that they held those beliefs, they were not greater minds. <laughs> yeah. And I don't mean, I don't mean that in any pompous way. It's just, mm -hmm. it's just, it's just an absurdity. So for me, I'm not going to get into an argument with them. They can figure they're going to go on asserting this stuff forever. Uh, David does engage him. And I think maybe, maybe he has engaged him enough. Now he can, he can stop and move on to something better like writing see i wrote a book of ghost stories that's coming out and that's what he needs to be doing is writing books mm -hmm. and stories because he's a good fiction writer so yeah that's cool so growing up in england there anglican there was no hellfire and brimstone i mean that's much of my in my charismatic pentecostal background growing up in um assemblies <laughs> of god like that was the gospel the gospel is you're going to hell unless you say these words or say this prayer you know, and we bastardize the gospel so much to, to the point where it's it's people on the outside are like, this is ludicrous. I don't want to join this, you know. Right. Well, well you know, the truth is, is um, they think that this is bringing people into belief into Christ. And maybe for certain kinds of people, it is. Um, it doesn't work. And I, and, I, and I know this sounds elitist, and, I, and I'm sorry for that, maybe, but there are certain, there's a certain intellectual um, 
kind of person that that is simply not going to win them over. And I remember there was a series years ago called The Long Search. And it was a British uh, agnostic. And he's talking to a fundamentalist in the USA. And, and he keeps saying, you know, let me take you down the Roman road. Do you know what the Roman road is? These texts from Romans that about how you get saved from hell. Oh, yeah, I'm familiar. Not, not that Paul ever mentions hell. He never mentions it once. But, uh, but they, you know, so this person is witnessing to him and he's saying, you know, and uh, if you don't do this, you'll go, you'll, you'll, you'll go in hell, go to hell. And the man who's, you know, Richard Ayer, um, Ronald Ayer, excuse me, who was the man who was doing this series. And he said, but I don't believe in hell. And the guy just keeps on going. Yeah, but if you keep, if you don't believe this, you're going to go to hell. And he's saying, yeah, but I don't believe in hell. But if you do this, you're going to go to hell. And it, and it was like he couldn't get it through his head that here's a person who, for very valid intellectual reasons, finds the whole idea of hell absurd. So how are you going to, how, you know, so if you want a church devoid of, of, of say, modern day intellectuals, okay, fine because they're the only ones who are going to be part of your church with that kind of, uh, you know, with that kind of understanding of, of ultimate reality. But anyway, okay, I, I'm exhausting you, I can tell you. No, 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 not at all. Not at all. I'm, I'm really enjoying this. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is, that is a, it is a fascinating thing. And, but it's funny, the funny thing is, I will say that um, because of that book, That All Shall Be Saved, that your brother came out with, what was it 2019 i think i guess yeah. it's well it actually there's been this huge uptick of people researching and doing work around and 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 opponents also um coming up with rebuttals to yeah. the whole the whole topic of christian universalism because i feel like even you know you had like rob bell like what 12 years ago who came out with love wins and that that didn't even it didn't even take a hard stance on universalism but people got their panties in a wad but it didn't really it didn't really get a conversation going like like your brother's book got a conversation going. Well, when you're when you have staked your entire theology basically on this as being an essential part of it, mm -hmm. um, it's it it first it's perceived like this uh, Father Rooney or whatever his name is. Who, I mean, as far as he's concerned, this is just abject. This is just heresy, you know? mm -hmm. and. Uh, it's not even it's not even within the orbit of of a possibility to deny this uh, as being uh, and by the way my brother does not deny hell per se yeah uh, uh, it's it's that he, he with george mcdonald and other people like that he's basically that, that that hell he doesn't deny that it's even punitive it, it's that it is purgatorial it is transforming um and uh, so, you know, it's 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 not that there is no hell. It's that it's that what we call hell is misunderstood as being a, a place of uh, endless torment. Uh, and so, anyway, that's uh, that's mm -hmm. just an aside. But uh, but for anybody who sees this as an attack, it's like an attack on the creed. You know, I don't believe that God is the the Trinity. Well, they put it on that level, and mm -hmm. and. And of course, there's no reason to. Yeah. At least I don't think. Mm. But I, well, I will say is that I can, 
I can point to a lot of people that I know that I've interacted with that the only reason they're even talking about this topic is because David's book, which is pretty fascinating, like yeah, the effect yeah. that it's had. Yeah, but, um, he popped some balloons. He did. He popped some balloons for sure. Well, anyway, Addison, um, do you have do you have a nickname? Yes, Addison. Addison. <laughs> <laughs> you don't go by Ad or Addy. No, I don't. No, it's <laughs> just Addison and. Uh, uh-huh. But. Uh, and your parents gave I, you guys I, some cool um, middle names, so you can so you can really put those on the front of books. Sounds. Cool. I put Hodges my middle name on there because to distinguish myself from my son, who also is writing. Oh, okay. He has he has chosen a different last name to distance himself from me. So. Okay. <laughs> I'm kidding. He, no, we're, no, we're, okay. We're very okay. Close. Good. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. yeah. No. Well, anyway. We're, very close <clears throat> how's norway how's it going there it's uh, still here and uh yeah it's fine cool places to visit yeah um if you're ever on the side of the atlantic let me know um uh, give you the tour nice this region of norway uh, it, it, people ask me where do i go to see the sites and it, i just say i look out my window because there's really a, it's like i used to live in new mexico it's the same thing there no matter where you go, you have a, you have scenery everywhere. It's just there. Mm. You know, you have to you'd have to be underground to avoid seeing it. Mm. And it's like that here in Norway. So. And when you go to an Anglican church in Nor in Norway, is it Norwegian or is it in English? Oh, it's in English. Really? Yeah. Fascinating. See, in, you see, in Bergen, you've got uh, cruise ships coming in all the time. That's one of the things. And all these people are getting off speaking English and and. Because English now is pretty much the lingua franca of the um, people who are looking for, they don't know Nor Norwegian, but they will know English. So they'll find yeah. it. And there's a there's a nice sized little congregation there for Bergen of people who are like me, expatriates, They uh, either from the British Isles or the United States. And in some cases, uh, the islands, the West Indies, and you know things like that. Mm. Africa. Are there, are there any Dunkin' Donuts in Norway? Uh, not Dunkin' Donuts, but we got Seven Eleven. Believe it or not, That's really Seven Eleven. Yeah, we got uh, Domino's Pizza. And, oh yeah, Starbucks. But actually, you have to look for Starbucks. There's certain places you won't find it, but uh, every yeah. once in a while you'll see a Starbucks and McDonald's, of course, mm -hmm. because that, you know. So yeah, and even Toys R Us used to be here before it. Yeah. Shop. So. May it rip. Yeah. Well, Addison, thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks. I'll stop Peter. the recording, but um, you know, God bless you, and thanks so much for your insight. I look okay. forward to talking to your brother. Yeah, I look and forward seeing, to seeing what he has to say. What good words he has to say about you. <laughs> I'll uh, I'll let him know when when this <laughs> drops. Like I say, I'll send him the uh, uh, link, and we'll. See what happens. Lord, Lord, the nature of your wrath, it's not an easy path, but I'm willing to trust, though I'm dying in the dust. <laughs>